Good afternoon. This is Good afternoon. This is the Curious Anarchy podcast with myself, Jermaine Gregory, and my co-host, Mark Wilson. Today's special episode, Tea with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we're going to be talking about football. Mark, take it away. Okay, so um, there's a couple of things that uh, probably need to be discussed around football, and in some ways it's an elephant in the room that people just acknowledge it's there and turn onto it when they wish to, when they think it's an idea for them to do so. But it's become a beast that's not recognisable to what it was. And in the such, it's lost touch with its roots and its community. I was just thinking how much football has played a role in this year of the virus, that it's served as a crutch for people to turn to when cabin fever sets in. So although fans haven't been able to go to games, it's actually been around a lot, more than it usually is, um, for the world as a whole. So it's become a sort of soft shoulder to lean on at times of, of trouble and stress. Uh, but I'm wondering what it would look like if there hadn't been football. How people would have responded, what they would have done instead. Imagine if wasn't, they said it's... Wasn't not... there some, like maybe a couple of months where there was no football? Correct. And people nearly went crazy. <laughs> you know, they really did. They were like, when's it going to come on? You know, and, and, and they went crazy from two aspects. One, from the aspect of not being able to go to games. And two, not being able to see games. Well, yeah, what you'll actually find is that the, the there was a very short period between the season that we were we were in the middle of uh, in February last year and the kick into the next season was a very short gap, like a month or two. It wasn't, it's usually about three or four months. It was like a month or two, the gap between the season we were in and the following season. So they kind of made up for it by shortening the gap that would normally take place in the summer months. Uh, now, I think the nature of football has changed dramatically. And I'm trying to try and break that down so that we can perhaps look at football, not so much as a sport, but more of what it's become. There's a fanzine, uh, a fans magazine in Sunderland called A Love Supreme. And that would pretty much sum up the historical linkage that people have with football. So people all over the country and all over the world have their favorite teams and their favourite um, sort of stories from the past, the, the the legacy that they carry from their parents and their grandparents. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to break this down a little bit better than that. My grandfather, in the 1930s, had to turn down a chance to play for West Ham United because he couldn't earn enough money to sustain giving up his day job. So in the space of 80 years, it's gone out of all proportion. Footballers in the 1970s are now penniless and homeless because they didn't earn anywhere like the kind of money that footballers are earning today. Now, my grandfather went on to supply um, prizes for fairground people so that, you know, he would actually come with the prizes that you win on the fairground. He was known by virtually all the showmen up and down the country, as they were called in those days. Um, 
as Maury the, the swagman because he brought all the prizes. Mm. But he was actually offered a, a, a you know a chance to play for West Ham United, and his mother told him he couldn't afford to turn it to take it on. He had to turn it down. <clears throat> Historically, people supported a team that represented the community and the work that they came from. So, for example, you'll often hear teams you know, that started in the ironworks or the canal works because that was the historical legacy of where they began. Yeah. And they, most clubs grew out of workplaces. So people were in a factory and they started to start a football team, bought themselves a colour to, to wear and they played against other teams. And it went from small numbers like eight teams to the numbers we have today. So the Premiership today would have uh, what sort of something like um, 20 teams in it. Um, and we've got 92 teams, professional teams in the Football League. But the point was that the families used to run the clubs, often very entrepreneurial and wealthy families. And they would try and steer the clubs in the direction that the fans, you know, would follow. So it became a legacy so that, you know, people could trace back what their parents and their grandparents had done on cup final day or when they'd won the league the first time in 30 years. Those kind of stories were reminiscent of, of a background and a legacy. And what we have today, is franchises. We have business clubs of extremely wealthy clubs. The top 30 clubs in the world now probably will start their own league at some point because they're so wealthy mm. and they earn so much money from it. And it's lost touch with the point of what football was serving to do. So that you can have a child today who supports Ronaldo and doesn't care what team he plays for, he'll follow him like he, as if he was following Serena Williams, because it's no longer about the football club that he actually started at, that he began. Otherwise, Ronaldo would stay in Portugal, play for the Portuguese team he started with, and, and that would be the legacy. But things have moved on so much. Mm. Now, I, I think, Jermaine, a lot of people... Go ahead. A lot of people might say to you, that's a good thing, because obviously it's brought it to more attention, more people follow it. But the, the downside is, it's a business now. So that, you know, I had this idea that Manchester City, who are the wealthiest team in, in Great Britain, um, their owner is so wealthy, he could have bought Man United and dismantled it. Like Richard Gere does in Pretty Woman, you know, actually just dismantled the franchise. Because he's so wealthy, he could have bought it on the stock exchange, because they're all on the stock exchange now. And he could have dismantled the club. Now, you know, that's throwing away 100 years of history. Of, of generation to generation passing it on, of the community growing up around the area and always having supported the team. You know, you talk to people today and they'll travel up and down the country to support the team. They won't come from like the, the local areas where they grew up and where they worked, which is how it used to be. I wonder, Jermaine, if there isn't a duality going on uh, a double history. You've got the legacy history for the working class of football being always a mainstay in their lives. And then you've got corporate history, which around the 80s onwards started to invest massively in, in, in the sport because of the money they can earn from TV viewing and merchandising. So football's become very much like the American football uh, franchises. So it's a big you, business now. 
do you think that it was a case of the club wanting to make more money or was it the media attention that so it's both really it's it's both okay. i mean for a start the clubs want to make more money because if you're let's imagine you were crystal palace because that's a team near you or wimbledon near you and you wanted to buy a star player like say you wanted to buy not messi because he'd be the best in the world but someone on that level if you don't have the money you can't buy that player so you're playing against man united who've got five of those players and you can't afford one so obviously it's in your interest to try and bump up your economy to do that but the other thing is they realize that you can only house 20,000 in certain stadiums whereas if you put it on the media and this is going all the way across the world i mean there are people sitting up at two in the morning in anywhere you could name in the world to watch a premiership game like last weekend it was man city versus man united there will be people watching that at three in the morning probably anywhere in the globe you know i wouldn't be surprised that in Tibet places, the Vatican are watching as well, because it's become that much of a global uh, identity. So the question we have to ask ourselves, is it a good thing that this is taking this shape? Is that a good thing? What's your view, Jermaine? Um, see, I kind of fall short on the whole sort of is it a good or a bad thing because it's reminiscent to me of just the natural progression of things or perhaps not natural but progression some sort of evolution of everything so somehow started out as you know rubbing two sticks together now we have light now we have love, <laughs> like we've we've adapted it to, to what we use it for um football beginning as a community thing spreading across communities borders um it's it's all synonymous with what happened in that transformation period as you said during the, the 80s um it's allowed it to cross borders so much further now i right. my thing is is if, if I had a football team, I would want as much support as possible. Um, okay. I would, I, the, the idea is that, you know, if you have more fans, you have more people who are, you know, paying attention, who are supporting you, who are going to be, you know, buying merchandise and all of that kind of thing, coming to games. Um, I guess the way that, that the world works is that we kind of need money to make it all work. The amount of money that are poured into this game are phenomenal. Phenomenal amounts of money. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and I mean, there's a part of me that questions, do you really need a half a million a week? Is is, is that really a, a viable salary? You know? And then I think about, okay, so for example, Messi, I think he's like the richest or the, the the most valuable player well yeah all sorts of endorsements and sponsorships and obviously royalties from team um jersey sales if I, I the i think the players have kind of been commodified the the first example that i would give is uh carlos tevez and the other player 
that came to Man United, the two Argentinians. Uh, oh, for me, their contractual agreement really drove home the point that yeah, this is a business because they they right. put in certain clauses into their contracts that other players wouldn't have had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they were owned by they owned themselves, kind of that kind of thing. And it's re- really it's fascinating, fascinating. Um, um, my my thoughts on the monetization of football. Yes. Um, I don't know. I think it's it, it, it. How how would we regulate it if that was to be a proposition? Well, I think we we need to take a step back from that first of all. What's happened is we've had a sustained attack in around Europe and in, in in some degrees in other places as well, sustained attack on the employment history and the community centralising of the communities. So where in the past you'd have a factory and, a, and workers living near where they worked, all that's gone out the window now. Do you mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so my question would be, do we need to look at it as a bigger picture? That it's actually been an attack on the history and the and the consciousness of a whole population. I wonder if they're not trying to remove the class side of everything nowadays. So, it, so I remember when they used to talk. Instead of people being someone who, for example, used a service, they became customers. So, if you were homeless, you weren't a service user, you were a customer. Right. And I think this is part of that, along with the franchisism of it, to turn it into a brand in itself. So Manchester United, it doesn't matter that it's in Manchester anymore, it could be on the moon and still be called Manchester United and still represent the interests of those who want to follow the team called Manchester United. And I think we're getting to a stage now where there are as many supporters outside of the United Kingdom as there are inside of, of the top 30 clubs. Yeah. Is that a good thing? Because what you lose is the soulness of it. You look the soul of it. It becomes soulless. The idea of a love supreme goes out the window because it's it's no longer that entity that you grew up with, that, that, that identity that you had. It becomes a global identity and a global franchise. So, it be it would be like today. It would be like sporting McDonald's, because for how much it's got linkage to its community, and then we could look at the community itself. So let's say, for example, let's pick an area, say South London, and you could say in South London there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of people that you know struggle to get housing and jobs. You know, the football club could put back into that community. It could then allow those people to come in as their main supporters. It would rebuild what, what we've lost over that time. But that's not their target audience. Their target audience is people that can come to a, a game, spend over £100 each visit, and will happily repeat that practice, knowing that other people will be lining up behind them to get the ticket if they don't get it. Is that a good thing? Um, 
from a not necessarily from a corporate perspective but i think it's a thing where if people are willing to pay then they'll take it now but you could say that anything if you you could pay people to kill people today yeah that's not necessarily now, a good thing, thing. is about like what how do how comfortable do people feel with what they're getting for their money and what can they do about it if they feel like yeah i'm not sure it's about being comfortable with getting what you what you pay for because it's also they've changed the shape so imagine there's something you cared about i'm reminded of that film where the, the fellow the millionaire goes up to this fellow and his wife and says i'll pay you a million pounds if you let me sleep with your wife it's like where is the soul of our society going if money can buy you anything you want but you don't judge things on you know this is curious anarchy we're talking about here where is the curious anarchy of challenging this this devotion to money and and franchises you know so if my football team tomorrow becomes changes from being let's say brighton and her baby and we starts calling itself kfc are we okay with that what, what I mean in terms of, you know, uh, the fans or the supporters being happy is, okay, if if there is an issue, are they going to do something about it? Because, like you said, you kind of, sort of outlined the, the humble beginnings of these huge, huge clubs. Over time, yep. years, decades, they've grown and grown and grown and become these powerhouses of yeah. financial institutions really you know um mm -hmm. they're doing all sorts of, of stuff all sorts of projects charity work stuff in the community etc etc but i guess on the other hand it's kind of like is is it enough could more be done are, are the supporters of the club aware of what's going on or are they are they happy with with it like can they do something can we can we kind of come together and say okay you know what we're not happy with these prices we're not going to turn up to your game if you don't score xyz so now we've reached a stage where more money is made from non-attendance of football matches so it wouldn't matter if they did that right now because they, they make more money from international tv sales and merchandising so you'd have to say around the world there'd be a boycott of buying their products and watching them on the television yeah. for it to take effect. Yeah. But I, I don't think you'd have the I don't think you'd have the clout to do that on a worldwide level. Well I mean uh, a team would have a team would have to do something incredibly bad for, for the worldwide market to switch off with. And also, you know what you talked about before is it's wonderful the way you articulated there, because it did sum up for me the history of, of football. So in teams like Manchester United and Arsenal, they had three, two to three generations of chairmen who who had guided the club in theory in the direction of the fans. I wouldn't say it always was the case at all, but certainly well, they were more approachable than, than what you've got now, which is, I mean, like, for example, Manchester United, Arsenal, Man City, Tottenham, uh, Chelsea, etc., have owners that aren't even from this country. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a problem because you can own it wherever you're from. But the problem with that is how you register your discontent mm. to people that aren't even necessarily even in the country. Mm. Which is why you've started to see lately, I don't know if you noticed it, but lately you've started to see planes flying up stadiums with messages on them to try and get the fans' message across. But it's not necessarily enough. You know, it's not necessarily enough. And, and as teams watch 
as they become priced out of not just the market of going to the games, but priced out of the direction they wanted their team to take. So if you wanted a few local lads to get into the team and, and you know, to have that sort of sense of this guy used to be on the terraces with us, all that's going to go out the window. You're going to have a 10-year-old wonder kid from Peru or something come instead. And that's not good for them either, because you, you then get a situation where lots of under under t- under teenage children are brought around the world. So if you buy, so when I say buy, I mean you give a contract to them and their family, 30 kids from around the globe who look like a, at seven years old, they could be footballers. And you take them to Barcelona or M- Milan or Chelsea, whatever. Yeah. And only two of them make it. For, for the club, it's a great thing. They've got two kids that are just wonder kids. But for the other 18 kids, it's a terrible thing. Their whole life's ruined. Now they, they, they came out of school, they spent years in a foreign country. I mean, it's been an absolute nightmare that they've, they've been disrupted from their whole lifestyle, their whole community, as a gamble that they're not even involved in. And that's the direction it's going. And I'm not certain about the re-emergence of strong racism in football. In the 70s, when we had racism, the fans kind of sorted out themselves because the fans were the community of that area and they didn't want racism in the grounds. What we've got today is that community doesn't exist anymore. You know, the local areas are not full of people who support that club. You could go around any club in in the world now and people that live in the area might support a team in another country or might support a completely different team. it would be inconceivable 30 years ago that in Barcelona there'd be Real Madrid fans. This would be inconceivable. And now it's quite conceivable. And I'm not sure that's a good thing for the soul of football. It's a good thing for the international image of football, mm-hmm. without a doubt. But I'm not certain we're not heading towards some kind of 1984 world where we get fed, uh, spoon-fed what we're meant to enjoy rather than it growing out of the community and being a legacy and a linkage to the past. So how do you think that, how do you think that clubs could kind of really sort of hold that in regard? So so a few clubs have tried this. You've got a few clubs like for example, I'll give you an example Manchester United. They started a team um, called FC United, which started in the non league. And they're trying to progress into the league situation now. And they're based on the values that Man United would have had in the past. So what they've done is gone straight back to scratch, to the beginning, and said, right, let's pretend it's 1880 and we'll start a club now and see if we can get them into the into the top divisions based on the values we hold important. My fear for them would be they'll do really well for eight years and they'll get to the top divisions. And then when they get to the top, someone will try and buy them out. <laughs> That's my fear. <laughs> because they'll become something worth watching at that stage. At the moment, you don't need to watch them because they're not in the main leagues. Like one of the things that came out through this um, pandemic was the, the class difference in football. So if you're in the first two divisions, you still can carry on playing, training, you know, don't worry about the virus, you'd still be on telly, etc. But if you were lower down or if in the women's game, stop playing until it's all cleared up. So non-league football has been stopped in this country. Women's football has, has only just started up again. You know, so the, the point being is that the, it became very much about only the commodity, the commodity sides could carry on. 
And I don't know how well that sits with people. I don't know how well it sits that English football becomes like American football because we always used to sit and look at it and go, wow, how, what soulless enterprise they use. And we are very much becoming that model. We are very much becoming that model. And I think we need to look at what's the role of the working class in football today? What's the role of, of, of minorities in football today? What, what's happening to all that? We can't just allow just some big franchise to take over and assume it's going to direct us all to a nice place. That would be a very dangerous assumption. I think football will lose its original um, fan base because I think it will become much more of a global, uh, global um, phenomenon franchising. Second phenomenon. Yeah, phenomenon. It'll become like a phenomenon around the globe. So that, you, you know, it's a bit like if we were playing different planets, it would become like that. Right. You know, Mars versus versus Earth. You know, it'd become like that. We, 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 we support it and watch it, but from a distance, not with the same passion and not with the love supreme that we had before. Okay. That would be my fear. And I can't see that reversing itself in any way anytime soon. Like, for example, a lot of the clubs during this pandemic have been laying off workers. They haven't been laying off footballers at the top brass. They've been laying off the tea ladies and the mascots. Which kind of shows you what, what, what their um, incentive for being involved with running these clubs is. It's certainly not to carry on the community side of it at all. And then also, when stadiums are half full, because when you get a team, to pick any team and they're not doing well, this, the, the support goes from the capacity to three quarters or, or less. And what they could do at that point is just offer a pound a ticket and people would just come on the day and go to the games. But my guess is they won't do that because it's, it's not in their corporate interest, really. And they're getting the money from season ticket, ticket sales from before the game. And uh, I mean, before the season starts, and and from the, the TV money, it raises a bigger question, which is: Are there things that we think are more important than money? I suppose for the fans, for the people, for the, the, the supporters of, of football, um, it's it's all part of an experience. In what way? In terms of you know, going to game and, and being part of a, a tribal group, if you like, um, being part of yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's when you be kind of separate the sort of global and the, the local, it, I guess you lose, if you're from the outside, you lose some of the, the local kind of aspect of it because you're seeing yeah. the glitz and glam of, you know, the shiny face of, of what's going on. Um, the presentation. If you're if you're local, and say you've been following a, a football team for a little while, maybe they're they're coming into the Premier League. You know, you've been promoted one season, so you have kind of come from, you know, those dirty, muddy turnstiles with like, barely any seating, and you know your your corner flags are like tatters. Um, to, I mean, uh, having visited the Tottenham Stadium. Absolutely. The what? The Tottenham Stadium. Come here, sorry, you're cracking up a bit. Tottenham Hotspurs. 
their stadium, their, yeah. their new stadium. You're cracking up, mate. Sorry. Yeah, their new, the, the Tottenham Stadium is fantastic. It is. Um, it's it's probably the best stadium. I would say it's even better than Wembley Stadium. Debatably, um, phenomenal. Yeah, so welcome back to Curious Anarchy. Um, technical mishap there. Um, so what I was saying in relation to Tottenham, yes, uh, I've just had a look at their ticket prices. You can pay anything from £52 to £98 for a ticket there. Wow, that's just mad. Right. I remember tickets being around the sort of 20, 25, 30 sort of mark. Um, and and progressively over time, you know, we're now looking at a hundred pounds, and that's top. That's 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 top tier. I mean, I went in the nineteen sixties and seventies. We used to pay on the day. You go to a turnstile, like you would to the cinema, like going on the day. Go to a turnstile, pay five pound, and go in. And it was better. It was better atmosphere. Um, the food was affordable. Um, we had a band play at half the time. You know, it was so much more to it than there is today. Today, it's much more like a, a Super Bowl, um, which is why I'm not surprised to hear that the cheapest ticket is £50. But you've got to think about, in the Tottenham area, who can afford £50? When you consider that's for one ticket, that's not getting there, that's not eating anything, that's not buying any drinks, and that's not including the other members of your family. So if you were going to take your son and your partner, you're looking at £150 a game. That's not representative of the Tottenham area. It's not representative of the Manchester area. It's not representative of the London of the Arsenal area. These are these are these are inflated prices. And I think if you didn't go, people like there was a time where Roy King complained at Manchester United that, that, about the prawn sandwich brigade that the people were coming yeah. to the games. And a lot of the, you look around the stadium and it was full of people from around the world. It wasn't full of Mancunians. So the atmosphere went down. So you didn't have the kind of that fearsome roar that you had originally disappeared because these the people who were making that noise normally couldn't afford to get in the stadiums. And this is your catch-22. The very essence of why people watch football disappears because they can't afford to go to the games. It used to be a working-class game. That was the whole point. I mean, you listen to the story of Pele, of Maradona, of George Best. These are working-class people. This was not some... Middle class, been to three universities. Now I'm going to play sport thing. It was a, it was like you know, off the dole queue into the into the football team. And you know everything you said about Tottenham to me highlights the soullessness of football today. It doesn't represent its community. Very few members of the community will go and see it like that. And if they do, they've got to spend it half a year saving up to get that kind of money. Um, it's become alienate alien from the people it was meant to serve in the first place and i think that's probably the case virtually up and down the country if not around the world you know i think when i go to barcelona and madrid and places it's the same there you know they've lost the sense of what it really meant to that community a, a really great example of, of the globalization of football and the teams is the the tottenham stadium is actually one of the stadiums 
used by the uh, NFL. Yeah, exactly. Come over. They're changing rooms. Huge. When I say huge, I mean it's like a almost like a sports hall. Like I'm talking. I've I've played Sunday League. These little dinky changing rooms with mud all over <laughs> the floor and broken showers and, and all of that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, now we're talking like yeah. <laughs> we're talking cleaners people who will come and press your shirts and the, your, your uniform and like all of this space and these boards with wipers and like the 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 the, the, the decoration around like I'm like there, there is so much money poured into these things it's a changing room all you need to do is go in there change have your team meeting get out on the field Nah, not anymore. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, I, you, you remind me, because I used to play at Hackney Marshes and Sunday League as well, and, and it was very much a, a, a stepping stone. Like There were people like Ian Wright and, and James Vardy who made it mm. to the Premiership from those from those situations, and often later on in life. And it was really a kind of like, you know, you played with your local people, and if you're good enough, you kind of got... Sh- like Pele was the same. I mean, Maradona, they were the same. They got shot up to hire higher callings because they were better at what they did you know if you yeah. were playing next to Pele you'd know it and then you, you know you'd know you'd know he was going to go on eventually to higher things and that was great here's a question here's a question if it wasn't for the globalisation of football would we know about Pele and Maradona yes we knew about Pele in the 70s because the World Cups were the you know the funny thing is now it's, it's, it's been diluted now because if you take someone Pele today would be playing for Barcelona so we know about him earlier and younger, and it's not a good thing. Because what one of the joys of the World Cup in the 70s was what kind of players will Brazil have? What kind of players will um, Italy have? You don't know. And you, when you turned up, you had the best of your team against the best of theirs. It was great. You had no levelling stick until the matches started. Now, you take someone like Messi, he can't win a World Cup. He's tried at six, seven times. He can't win the World Cup. But he, everyone knows him in Europe. Now, in, in the old days, he wouldn't have been known until he's won a World Cup. Maradona and Pele had to win World Cups to get known. So, a very different example. And I'll tell you another thing about today. What makes the atmosphere today is when you play a team that's small. For example, a team that's come up from the championship and they bring 2,000 fans that sing the whole way through the game. You can see the contrast to how football's meant to be to what it's become yeah. today. The yeah, people in the yeah. bigger stadiums are lazy. They're going out for drinks and food halfway through the game. You know, they're, they're listening to us. They're watching other games on the on their phone. You know, they just they've become lazy. That's not what support was. I mean, we used to stand up. And I'm not being funny, but if I went to a game with you in the seventies, I'd be lucky to find you after the game. Because when when a goal scored, everyone surges forward. If I can find you afterwards, I've done well. You know, there are scenes in films where you see this, where the guy takes his girl to the football, and he's lucky to find her afterwards. Because literally, the surge down of 10,000 people, you could end up anywhere, absolutely anywhere. I mean, and that's what happened with Hillsborough, and that's why, you know, the game changed its shape. And, and that was the excuse, because the politicians didn't like the kind of rampant violence and, and, and working-class identity of football. So that's all changed now. We've lost that soul of it. You know, we could do an amazing podcast right, going around the country, talking to people about their experiences of football before and after the 80s. It would be so amazing to hear the contrasts of what they would have to say. Because I think we'd have a lot of stories that, that just shine and subsequently we'd have a lot of 
collective, you know, global experiences that aren't anywhere near as 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 heartfelt. You know, the people that go up at six in the morning to to walk all the way to the station to get the train down to London to get to the cup final, and the cup final being so full that people had to stand on the edges of the none of that exists anymore. Mm. None of it, none of it. And it's a shame because you've lost so much of the identity of, of football. And I think you've lost so much of, of the character of the community. It's really interesting because um, you and I spent a lot of time this year talking about racism. And it's interesting that because we've done that, we've gone back into the stories of black and, and uh, minority players who have been playing since 1900 for various teams. And their legacy has been brought up again. All of that's going to get lost with this globalism because that's not what they, they're about. They're literally about finding superstars. That's it. You know, because you get Ronaldo's shirt and his shirt is worth billions of pounds. I mean, to, mm. to, to, to franchise money around the world. But the actual story of, of the fellow that plays next to him that, that, you know, used to be a cashier in Morrison's, no one cares anymore. You know what I'm thinking? Um, there's, there's somebody called Toby in, uh, you know, the politics support? Yeah. Post-truth. Yeah. Um, Toby, he's a massive, massive football fan, and he loves discussion around this kind of thing. I think I'd, I'd quite like to get him on to kind of talk about this. Oh yeah, perspective. Um, That'd be There was there was an exchange that we had. We were talking about uh, Messi being like the the richest footballer, and and he basically makes Barcelona who they are. Absolutely, because of his because of his sales. Like if he left they'd lose about half of their income. Well, they have to find the next... Because Messi was the replacement for Ronaldinho. So they have to find the next one. Because they both... Since the since the late... Since Cruyff played for them, they built teams around superstars. Hmm. Whereas Real Madrid just bought loads of superstars. So they just buy 20 superstars. So any player that shows their head above the pulpit anywhere in the world, Real Madrid will buy them. But with Barcelona, they'd buy one player that was sensational and build the whole team around him. So right now it's Messi. But they're going to have to look for the next Messi now because he's coming to the end of his tether. But you're, right, you're 100% right. That's exactly what would happen. He is Barcelona. And that's because of the franchises of football. Yeah. You know, in the past, that didn't matter. You didn't have to have main players. You know, I can show you cup final after cup final that were won by people you wouldn't even know the names of the people. So that's how football has changed because it because also the community around the grounds has changed. So you used to have like when I would walk to a game in the seventies at night, everyone would hang out the windows and wave their scarves. Compared to when Arsenal tried to move stadium, the locals voted against Arsenal staying where they were and extending the, the capacity. But a lot of those people that voted were stockbrokers and bankers who'd moved into the area because it was cheap housing and didn't support Arsenal or didn't support any football team. Just didn't want loads of thugs coming through the, their, their gardens. That's the changing shape of of the game. And it's sad. One thing that I wanted to ask you, actually, is in terms of like these recent developments, like we've got VAR now, virtual. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what does that actually stand for? I know that it's, it's the computer system that they video use. Assisted, video assisted replays. 
Ah, right, okay, yeah. So we're looking at, you know, tapes, recordings, playbacks of offside decisions to, to find out whether it should be given or not. Goals, whether the goal, a goal, a ball has crossed the line or not. I, I feel like it's kind of taken some of the the natural... That real kind of, was it a goal? Yes, it was. No, it wasn't. You can play at least like it. It, it can't, it's like okay, we're just going to play back with tape. Let me ask you a more global question like that. Do you believe that having CCTV in every street has taken away the character of what a lot of high streets had in the past? I guess my response to that would be um, it's <laughs> the quantum physics here the, the <laughs> observer effect <laughs> when people are being watched things are a bit different from when they're not being watched um, right, there's, a, there's a misconception oh, there's a misconception and the misconception is that the technology is good enough to actually deal with what's going on. So what you do instead is you inhibit the, the population from doing their normal thing. And at the same time, you don't have the technology to, to for it to stand up in court because nine out of ten times it gets thrown out because it's not clear enough. <laughs> so in both senses, it fails. And this is exactly like VAR. It doesn't work. Mm. It's pointless mm. having it. I mean, and one of the greatest debates in English football over the past, uh, I can say, 70 years was whether the ball crossed the line when in the cup final with England versus Germany. Mm-hmm. And you have people arguing still 30 to 50 years later whether it did or not. And that's part of the, the, the fun of the game. What you've got instead now is you've got VAR, stops the game for 10 minutes, doesn't add on the 10 minutes at the end of the game, and is often still wrong. Or it will spot that someone's finger now was offside. It's like, it's ludicrous. It's completely pointless to sport the game. You played this game. Can you imagine playing Hackney Marshes and having VAR stopping every five minutes when you someone thinks you might be a fraction offside? And there's your other problem, is that it can't go all the way through. It doesn't go to 92 teams. It only goes in the top tier. So when we have FA Cup games against championship teams, they don't have VAR, but other games will have. That's like ludicrous. I suppose that there's, there's an imbalance there, because if you're playing like some lower league teams, exactly. you don't experience that. It, it it can be a bit unnerving. No, they don't it have it. They don't have it. You know, you know, if you went um, to, if you went to, there, there. but if you played in Leighton Orient, let's say Man United were playing Leighton Orient, Orient do not have yeah. VAR. They won't have it at the ground. It's not a question of they feel strange about it. They will not have it. And if they play at Man United in the FA Cup, it will not be used because it's not fair. Whereas if Arsenal oh, yeah. played Manchester United, it would be. It will, uh, so you got two yeah. systems in place now. That's really weird. It's just badly organised. It's not weird. This is so poorly organised. And again, this is all to do with franchisism because it means that certain more people get money out of the whole system. Money. Yeah. yeah. It's just silly. It's not. It doesn't help the game in any way. You know, I'm quite happy to go along with a refereeing decision much more than I am with a VAR decision that is wrong. However, for example. The hand of God. If there was VAR, <laughs> you see, that's part of the joy of football. That was people. People still talk about the hand of God. That's how important that was. 
I, I don't think it should be stopped with, because of the AR. And you're not guaranteed with the AR that it would stop it. If you see some of the decisions been made recently, you'd be amazed they were using a camera to watch and, and, and you know, specify what's going on. Blatant penalties not given, uh, offsides given, given for the completely random thing of a, a sleeve being off, off rather than the hand or whatever. You know, it's just silly little things. Hand, blatant handballs not given. You know, I mean, it, it hasn't given anything extra to the game. And I do not believe it would it would work in that case of Madonna. I just do not believe it would have worked. And I think that's part of football folklore. I think I think that's one of the stories people will tell from year from generation to generation about Maradona scoring yeah. that goal. And, and people but, often forget that he scored an absolutely amazing goal afterwards. Anyway, that put the tie the yeah. old bell. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so it's not even like that was a big issue, but um, but. I think that's important to put, to have those stories, to be honest with you. And you can't always get everything right. You can't get everything it, right. It does really, like, you know, kind of emphasise the, the culture aspect of yes. the period of time that it was in. Yeah. And now that we have VAR, we, we potentially may not have instances like that. So um, offside that weren't called will be called now, but they'll be called perhaps after they've scored. Well, um, and then it will be corrected, so they'll correct the score during the game. It's I like, think it'll be wait. What? I think it'll be interesting if you bring uh, this chap on because he'll explain to you why VAR is not working the way you think it is. It's not. It's not achieving the, the results it hoped to achieve. Hmm. So that's not necessarily also, true. Another point, because um, this kind of really links in with the whole comment I made earlier about the progression of things. Um, we've been talking about, you know, like um, the commodification of, of football players, the commodification of teams, um, merchandise, etc., etc. All of that. Now, just think about Sunday League pictures. Absolutely shocking. Just the state of, of, of the stadium and, and ground. The actual grass. I've played in some, like, you you've played Sunday League football. Mm. <laughs> Played, you played football anyway. Yeah. Um, and I've coached the football. And these, I've coached these all these pictures. They're terrible. Yeah. yeah. yeah these, some of these pictures are terrible. You know, some of the time we were playing practically on a hill. Yeah. On yeah. a gradient. Oh, absolutely. You know. But on it, on um, a slope that was, you know, and they were in the bottom tier of, of professional football. You only started playing in the second half when you were going downhill because you couldn't possibly score going uphill. <laughs> it literally was. I could show you the stadium. I could show you videos from it. It was literally. Yeah. There was no point playing in the first half. There was no. Your best option was to try and defend. So even if you didn't kick the ball, it just rolled downhill. It could potentially roll into your goal. So your 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 option was to defend at all costs. And so let's say you conceded two. The idea is you try and get three in the second half so that you win the game. That's literally how. Because and also Arsenal reserves often played there. So I went there many times and saw this happen many many times. Um, right, right. But what I'm saying to you is, you know, you, it's funny with your recollection because my recollection is I remember the Premiership being like that. I remember from January to to sort of like end of March, mud bath pitches, and you can watch yeah. videos on TV of, I mean, how people like George Best played on those pitches, yeah. I will never understand, because these were people that liked to be silky with their skills and dribble. I mean, it was literally mud bath. It was like playing in the beach. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, it actually showed up how good they were because they used to leave people standing. But I don't know how they did it because, quite frankly, the ball was getting stuck so often. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it was like literally trying to find a blade of grass. It was the opposite way around to today. <laughs> I know because I worked at Arsenal and, and the, the grass is, is like imported from Holland. It's amazing pitch. It's yeah. all the latest technologies. It's, it's even built in non-grass aspects so that you can't get your stud caught in either part of it so you can't break your leg. So it's, 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 it's a pitch made for sprinters, for... You know, like Usain Bolt would be good for this pitch. Yeah. It's not built yeah. for football, it's built for sprinting. And he used to play football. No, well, not very well, well. but he did, yeah. He, he didn't do it very well. <laughs> there's, a, there's two. Oh, there, there, there was also a Welsh guy that was an athlete, and he they both tried. And unfortunately, their footballing skills didn't match their pace, which and their pace wow. was the thing you wanted them for, obviously. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, but they, 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 their footballing, their, their control... I mean, I think Bolt tried three teams and he just wasn't successful in any to me. Oh, really? He just, oh, wow. he just didn't have that level of football, to be honest. And, and that's, you know, like, it's not his fault. He loved well playing the game. Him, you can love playing yeah, the game yeah. and not be professional level. And just because you're a good athlete, let's say Roger Federer wanted to play for Switzerland at football, he's great with ball control, but he wouldn't be good at playing football. It requires different skills. And, mm-hmm. you know, all, so what you're saying would have is the ability, if you could beat the offside trap, to be 30 yards ahead of someone else. Basically. But then you spend 10 minutes trying to kick the ball in the net, which would, probably wouldn't work. <laughs> and then have VAR turn his goal down anyway. <laughs> For offside, because he had his sleeve <laughs> yeah. on the wrong side. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. And, um, and that's, that's where we're at today, because it's funny, because I, I do remember games, really remember games that were just filthy. And I can remember back in the 60s, a match being cancelled because it was so foggy you could not see the other end of the pitch. And we both, they actually played it. You know, today they'd call it off years before the game started. I mean, today you call off games, snowy games, in case you slip outside the stadium and break your leg and decide to screw the ground. So mm. they actually cancel games long before they, they should. I just want to tell you this story because I was at the game. I was a, I was a young boy and um, it was foggy. And it was like 20 minutes into the second half, they called the game off. And everyone came oh, wow. off. And then about 10 minutes yeah. later, the goalkeeper on the far side of the pitch came off because he hadn't realised the game had stopped. And he just, he was standing there for 10 minutes and nothing had happened at all. He couldn't see anything. Nothing had come down his end. And he started to walk up the pitch to find out what was going on. And he had, everyone had left the pitch 10 minutes earlier. <laughs> like, you can't imagine that happening today. But that's what it was like. I remember the commentator of Match of the Day, Jimmy Hill, running the line at Arsenal, being a linesman because the referee got got hurt and the linesman became the referee and he took over, left the TV show and put on a blue tracksuit and ran up and down the line. Oh, wow. But those things can't happen today because we've lost that culture, that spirit of the game. All of that, that naturalism of it. One of the things I love having different atmosphere. One of the things I love having around the world is people find their own solutions. Like if cars don't work, they use elastic bands, and you know there's a real sense of community solving a problem. And you lose all that when you become a franchise. It becomes something completely different. It does become Earth versus Mars. That's what. It becomes. Buy a T-shirt saying we hate Mars, and buy a T-shirt that says we love Earth. You know, it becomes that. It, it loses this, this character. There's so much involved with football, though. You know, like, like I was saying about the grounds, like the technology that they've poured into, you know, every single, whether it's artificial or whether it's like actual 
yeah, but, graph. But the thing is, Jermaine, that's uh, only in the Premiership. That's only in the Premiership. If you go lower down, they don't have those technologies. Well, yeah, they don't. So I'm saying, say for example, about... there was a team in Spain that got to one of the European finals. Right. I can't remember who they were. Was it? It might have been Deportivo La Coruña. It was one of these. T- I can't remember who they were. Oh. They might have been Betis. I can't remember. And, and they they were so small a team in Spain that they actually their flag, their banner at the at the final was the names of every single fan of the club. And these examples stand out. Like when Hull came to Arsenal a few years ago, they kept singing the whole game. They were amazing. They were like what football used to be like. Because in the lower leagues, you can still stand up and you can still sing. In the premiership, it's all sitting down on nice seats and you don't know who your neighbour is. You know, so you lose that character of that. See, in the, when I was okay. young and I went to football, I'd go to a stadium hmm. and the people around me would be like my instant community. So we'd all be singing and getting involved and hugging each other and rolling down the stadium when it, the goal scored all of that's gone but not in the lower leagues because in the lower leagues they still have what we had that's why so it, is, is but, that the case now? yeah I mean I'm saying it's still the case now like that and I'm okay. saying so if you have a cup final game so say well, not cup final I keep saying cup final if you have a FA Cup game and you had a game out Altrincham versus Liverpool People can't wait yeah. to go to Oldham's ground that only holds 5,000 because everyone's standing and it's, you know, there'll be people standing on buckets outside the ground trying to watch or climbing up trees. It's like the character yeah. of what football used to be. But there, if there was a replay, it'd go back to, let's say, Anfield and you lose all that character because it becomes that franchise beast. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to you, I think this is wrong. And it's the elephant in the room because people will not talk about it. You know, really, you know, what's interesting, you know, I find this fascinating. And I, I think this is a very good point to end our discussion until you invite the other chap on. This is a very good place to end. Football fans united for the first time in their history to to come to London and defend the statues or whatever nonsense they were talking about. Um, but they haven't united against, against franchisingism in football. Because they don't want to, they don't want to link with a rival team in that. But they would link with it to come down and defend British culture, history, whatever that they think that is. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a there's a contradiction here. There's a contradiction between not defending your community of football, but you are prepared to defend the community of your fake history. That's a contradiction that needs to be explored because. I'm amazed that they, they're not prepared to defend the very thing that the vehicle that gives them the very essence of what their of their existence is about. Because, you know, a love supreme is about them believing in their team and their area and what have you. And they're not prepared to defend that, but they're prepared to defend some statue of someone they don't even know the name of. Interesting. Well, I think... Uh we'll be leaving that discussion there for today um hopefully i can get hold of uh Obi and invite him on yeah and kind of share a little bit of his uh enthusiasm um I, for, for football see i can match it because i have uh, enthusiasm as well i just you know this isn't it hasn't been the forum to discuss that but if you bring him on i'm sure we can get into it um and i know you can because you played as well you played as well so you can you've got a lot to contribute um, so let's have that conversation but I'd like it to be about the elephant as well 
because I think this elephant needs looking at properly. Yeah, that'll be an interesting one. So look out for the next episode. Um, what are we calling this one? Well, this one is called yeah. A Love Supreme, but I wanted, I wanted to sort of end it on the point that perhaps in this day and age in football, you will walk alone. Because the old song in football is you'll never walk alone. I think right now you will walk alone because th that sense of community is disappearing. Fascinating. Huh? That is Curious Anarchy. That's podcast. Brilliant. For today, myself, Jermaine Gregory, and my co-host, Mark Wilson. If Look could, out for us touring just, across Africa in the future. Yeah, but can I just explain also, to people that if you're listening to this today, uh, I want to explain to you that Jermaine, it was his birthday yesterday, and I think we'll all agree how well-rounded and balanced he sounds, given that it's the day after his birthday. So, full <laughs> respect for the professionalism of the man. Um, and that's why you choose to listen to Curious Anarchy. Hey, that's the one. I like that. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, always, again. always. Curious Anarchy listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, if you would like to reach out to us on Twitter oh, yeah, with yeah. any thoughts or comments or anything that you'd like to share, anything you'd love us to talk about, please do so. Twitter and Instagram, the handle is both, are both the same, at underscore Curious Anarchy. That is it for today. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank Stay you. Stay curious. Stay anarchistic. Yeah.